I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Almost everybody has ridden a bike at some time in their life, whether it was that banana seat Schwinn that you had as a kid, maybe you had a mountain or racing bike, or perhaps you've got one of the new e-bikes. Wheel and Sprocket's been a destination for cyclists in southeastern Wisconsin for 50 years, and joining us is Noel Kegel. He's one of that second generation siblings carrying on a tradition of cycling in the community. And Noel, you know, I think back to my own childhood and it was, can I have a bike? Can I have a bike? Can I have a bike? And I had to wait for that special occasion to get my first bike. But you must have had bikes from the time you were able to walk. That's true. It's part of our DNA. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember your first bike? Yeah. You know, as you mentioned, when you're a kid, that first bike represents freedom. It's when you have independence, you can go on your own within the neighborhood, within the guidelines that your parents set out. And I certainly remember that for myself. I think I was maybe four or five and I have a picture of my bike and I had streamers on it. And we lived in Hales Corners at that time. And definitely remember going up and down the driveway, uh, around the block. And it's a near universal experience, right? Almost everybody knows how to ride a bike because they learned when they were a kid because it's just that iconic thing for kids. What was your favorite bike you had as a kid? You've heard that story of the shoemaker who, you know, doesn't doesn't their have nice shoes. Their children have their shoes, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of the same thing. So we got the hand-me-downs. You know, I always sort of, you know, had my eye on different bikes over the years and, you know, never got them, you know, because the good bikes work for customers. And then we got sort of the misfits at home. But I definitely remember when I was maybe 12 or 13, And that's uh, in the early 90s. That's when carbon fiber bikes started to come out, you know, which were just, you know, sort of the big new thing. And, you know, being 12 or 13, you think you're an adult, you think you're ready. And and I had my eye on a certain, you know, carbon fiber bike, which definitely was way more bike than I deserved as a 12 or 13 year old. But I just had it in my head that I needed that bike. And we used to do the bike expo at State Fair Park for over 35 years. And... I remember seeing that bike at the Bike Expo, and we worked that event as kids, and I remember my dad telling me, you know, you can't have that bike. That's too nice of a bike for you. But he sort of made a deal with me, and, you know, if I helped at the sale and I helped customers and picked up garbage and did whatever, that maybe he would consider if the bike was there at the end of the sale that maybe I could buy it uh, for myself. And did you? And I did, and I had that bike all through college. Regretfully, I don't have it anymore, but that was sort of the first bike I lusted after. That was sort of the all-time favorite then. Well, it's not my all-time favorite bike. When you work in the bike business, you're sort of spoiled because you sort of have your pick, right, of everything that's out there. And my favorite all-time bike is a bike that I rode for long distance. I spent the better part of a year in my 20s, and I rode from Portugal to China. So I rode from the Atlantic Ocean to the Wait Pacific a Ocean. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You rode from the far western end of Europe all the way to China? Yep. That was 11,000 miles. And the bike that I rode on that trip is my all-time favorite bike. Of course, I've spent so much time on it, so many miles. 
uh, it was my you know, trusted steed oh, for all those miles. Well, we have to talk about this trip. Now, how did that all come about? When I was in high school, looking at schools, I decided to go to school in Montreal. And so I had gotten accepted to a school in Montreal, and I got accepted to Madison. So I could go either 90 miles away or 900 miles away. I love my family, but I was very independent. I wanted to be 900 miles away. And I think my dad suggested that we ride our bikes to school. So when I was 18, you know, graduate high school after that summer, going off to college, we rode our bikes from Milwaukee to Montreal, 900 miles away. And that's sort of... For, for your first day of... For my first day of school, uh, college. I, I hope you weren't carrying all of your things on that bike. It ended up being a family trip. Uh, my mom drove the van mm-hmm. with all my stuff, and I have three other siblings. And so the six of us did this bike trip, and my mom 900 drove miles. 900 miles. And that's sort of the first time I did bike traveling, right? So traveling, you know, long distance, using your bike, and uh, I caught the bug. So I did that for three years. Three years, I went away to school and rode my bike there. At the beginning of every semester? At the beginning of every year. Oh, every year. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I didn't do it one year for the fourth year. So after school, after college, graduation, you know, I, I, I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to do another long distance bike trip? The bug had bitten me. And at that time, I thought, well, I could go coast to coast here in in North America. A number of people do that. There are routes. There are established ways of doing that. Uh, That sort of seemed too easy for me. I wanted something that was a real challenge, something that was out of the box. And so rather than going ocean to ocean in North America, I looked at a map and how about ocean to ocean across Europe and Asia? That seems like a real challenge. I think that's an understatement to call it a challenge. (laughs) So that was sort of the idea that I couldn't let go of. I didn't really have the money or the gear or anything after graduating school, but I had the idea. And so I didn't exactly know when it would happen, but I think that first summer after school, I used the money that I had saved working and I bought the bike. So at least now I had the bike and built it part by part, you know, exactly the way I wanted it. And it ended up being five years later that I sort of had the time and saved enough money and was the right place in my life that I could take the year and do this experience. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. My plan was basically wake up every day, look at where the sun was rising, and ride in that direction. Noel Cagle talks about riding a bike solo from Portugal to China. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with Noel Cagle about riding a bike from Portugal to China. So you started in Portugal. And did you have a plan? Well, my plan was basically wake up every day, look at where the sun was rising, and ride in that direction. And you were alone? I was alone. How many countries did you go through? It ended up being 19 countries through, you know, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, into Central Asia and across China. Was it easy to find roads that you could travel? You know, that's part of the adventure is figuring it out. I did buy maps along the way of varying degrees of accuracy and quality. I did learn that asking locals for direction is the absolute worst thing you can do. Locals tend to not have that perspective of, you know, going a long distance and, you know, they use landmarks that are familiar to them, which are unfamiliar to me. And so, yeah, I made plenty of wrong turns and had to, you know, go backtrack a little bit. And uh, as long as I was heading east, I knew I was going in the right direction. How many languages do you speak? Uh, you know, I speak English pretty well. and you know, We I'd, all try, right? <laughs> we all try. Uh, you know, I studied French and actually studied Russian and Chinese, you know, through school. So I had like some, you know, really basic vocabulary in, in, in those languages. And actually, once you get out of Europe, 
through a lot of Asia because of the former Soviet Union. A lot of people speak Russian and in Central Asia. And then obviously China is really big as well. So, you know, from the time I got out of Europe, you know, between Turkish, Russian and Chinese, you can really get thousands of miles. And when you spend, you know, time sort of, you're in the countryside for the most part, you know, nobody's speaking English. Like I would look up, you know, basic words and where can I camp and where can I eat? And, you know, you, once you're there for a few weeks, like you pick up things. Were you ever in a mindset that maybe you were in a dangerous area? You traveled 19,000 miles through countries. A lot of people have never even seen. Was there any particular place that you said, oh boy, maybe this wasn't a great idea? You know, people have asked, that question of me in the past and what always comes to mind, and it's unfortunate, is I have felt least safe here in the U.S. than other places uh, around the world. I did a shakedown ride before this just to test out my gear, and I rode from St. Louis to Atlanta and in the Deep South, you know, really back roads. I was made to feel very uncomfortable. Really? And that was very unfortunate, right? Because, you know, you can be in the middle of Uzbekistan or China or Turkey or Azerbaijan and, and people are warm and hospitable and they want to help. And I didn't get that feeling uh, in the back roads uh, in the South. Were you ever out there on this trip from, from Europe to Asia where you felt totally isolated and alone? Yes. And that was an amazing experience and amazingly empowering. Where were you? Uh, so it happened you know, in a few places. And these are really very remote areas. Uh, one was in a desert uh, in Uzbekistan, and you're in a desert, you're riding every day, it's hot. And I think that stretch was maybe 10 days, 10 days riding in a desert. And the interesting thing about deserts are there's nothing there. There are no trees, so there's no wind rustling the leaves. There are there's no, no shade. There's no shade, there's no animals making noise, there's no birds. Like the silence of a desert is deafening. And it's a very unique experience. You know, here, in Wisconsin, you go anywhere, you're going to have background noise, whether it's, you know, people or cars or birds or crickets or wind in the lead, like whatever, like it's never silent. And in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, it is silent. And that's sort of an empowering feeling because in all of this nothingness and all of the silence, here I am, right? I am the life in this vast, barren, sort of bleak beauty. Did you ever run low or out of supplies? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to you know, know exactly what the road ahead looks like and what services will be available. And, you know, in those desert stretches, both in Central Asia and in Western China, I didn't know when the next town would be, when the next supply, you know, sort of store or truck stop or whatever. I did have a water filtration kit. So I, if I found, you know, running water, I could filter it. And that was great. But there's no water in the desert, no is there? water in the desert. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I did the best I could to try to anticipate. I think I was carrying like four or five gallons of water on my bike, which that weighs a lot. I mean, sure. imagine a five-gallon jug, you know, it's 30-some pounds, you know, and you try to be smart about using that water because you have to use it for drinking and obviously for cooking too. So, yeah, that's all part of the adventure is, is the unknown and trying to figure it out. There was a time that was sort of more desperate than others in Western China, and I had truly run out of water. I did not anticipate being so far between places to resupply. And then I, I ended up sort of stopping, you know, in these remote highways, you maybe see one or two semi-trucks a day. So I, I ended up stopping one and asking if they had water. And, you know, these truckers are smart. They know that if they get stuck out here, they're going to be on their own. So they had ample supplies in their truck. And they were happy to share. And they were happy to share. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. It's running low on water. The sun was setting. I come over the rise of a hill 
and I see one road crossing another road, and that's it. Noel Cagle talks about the most memorable part of his solo trip on a bike from Portugal to China. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with Noel Cagle from Wheel and Sprocket and find out if he had something to prove by traveling solo on a bike from Portugal to China. What was the most memorable part of the trip for you? You know, I could speak a lot about that because there are a lot of memories. One thing that surprised me on that trip was I never found my limit. In terms of my physical limit, my mental health limit, it was challenging. There were very, very challenging days for different reasons, whether they're interactions with people or the physical challenge, you know, going over mountain passes, days between resupply. But I never felt lonely. I never felt that I should turn around and that this was a mistake. I do remember one particularly hard day, and this was maybe the closest to the limit I ever got. So I'd been you know, in Western China. It had been several days since my last resupply. I was really the middle of nowhere. And this was in October. So it's getting towards the end of the year. Sun goes down maybe around five o'clock, four or five o'clock. So you don't have a ton of daylight. So this time of year in the desert, it gets very cold at night, very cold. You know, it gets below freezing. And in the day, between like, let's say 11 and 3 p.m., it's above freezing. So you're sort of out in the elements day after day after day. And I was really looking forward to getting to a town where I could maybe get a shower, find a hotel, get some real food. And on my map, I saw that approximately 80 miles away from where I was starting the highway that I was on was crossing another highway. And I thought, if I get to that intersection, there's probably something there. And actually, it wasn't 80 miles. It was like 110 miles. So that was, that was further than I would normally go in a day. Normally, I would go, you know, at this time, maybe 70 or 80 miles a day in the daylight hours. And I saw that it was beyond that. So it was a stretch. So it was going to be a stretch to get to this intersection. And if I got to that intersection, I'd get a shower and a hotel and food, and it was worth it. So I woke up early when it was still dark that day because I knew I had to go further. I mentioned it was below freezing at night, which means in my tent overnight, the condensation from my exhaled breath would condense and freeze on my sleeping bag. So every morning I would get up and I'd have to shake off the thin layer of ice. So anyways, it's dark. I'm packing up my stuff. I'm getting ready to go. I'm excited to get to this, what I thought would be a town. So anyways, I, I go and go and go. There was an unexpected mountain pass that was hard. I was running low on water. The sun was setting. Normally, I would pull over and start setting up my camp so that I could be in my tent, in my sleeping bag by sundown because it got cold. I pushed through because I knew there was still more to go. You know, so it was getting, you know, the sun was setting, you know, it's just dipping below the horizon. I come over the rise of a hill and I see one road crossing another road and that's it. Oh, right. So I'd extended myself expecting Did you panic a bit. It wasn't panic. It was just sort of this extreme, it was a letdown. It was disappointing. It was frustrating because I pushed myself to get to a reward and the reward wasn't there. So I saw one road crossing another, disheartened, pulled off to the side of the road, set up my camp, didn't even bother with food, went to sleep. And um, I saw on my map that the next day, even further away, was an actual dot on the map for a city. And so if I could go, I don't remember exactly, let's say 120 miles, I knew for sure there would be a city. And so the same thing, you know, woke up in the dark, brushed off the ice off my sleeping bag, got going over the mountain pass, running low on water. 
And um, I did find the town the next day. I rolled in very late, you know, maybe 10 or 11 at night, found a hotel. I went to a fast food restaurant. I ordered like everything on the menu. <laughs> it was like one of the best days of my life. <laughs> During this time, did you ever break down? With the isolation, the fact your family wasn't near you, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't have easy contact with them, especially right. in these isolated areas. Did you ever cry? No. And that's sort of what I was referring to. Like, I never reached my limit. I was never. I mean, most of us would. I would be broken down. I would be a mess. I'd be a puddle on the side of the road. Yeah. I've always been sort of an independent person. And I take sort of great pride in being self-sufficient. And this whole trip, there was no sponsorship, right? I wanted to be my own financial means. I rode every single mile. I wanted to be my own sort of kinetic, you know, physical. You never hopped on a truck and said, hey, take me here. Right. You know, so I wanted to be my own mental power, my own physical power, my own financial power. And that was very satisfying for me. So yeah, you know, I never, I never broke down. Like I always, like I could envision the end. I could envision reaching the Pacific Ocean, accomplishing this goal. There was no sort of bigger ulterior motive. It was just to do it. How long did it take you? You know, it took, uh, it took 10 months start to finish. Was it difficult going back to your old life when you returned after nearly a year on the road? Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't. You know, because by the, by the time it was done, I was ready to be done. You know, I had accomplished this goal. I had set out what I started to do. I was looking forward to sort of getting on with regular life and, you know, settling down and all these kinds of things. My goal was to be back by Christmas. Christmas, you know, is really a fun holiday for us. And yeah, slipped right back into it. You know, this happened a while ago. This happened 12, 13 years ago. But I think it was an important part of my professional development because I think for myself, I gained a lot of credibility. When you grow up in a business, when you're the kid of the boss, you know, and you genuinely want to do good and you want to earn what you get, um, you know, I didn't want a handout, I didn't want special treatment. And part of me always thought I got special treatment because I was the kid of the owner, you know, and that I didn't maybe really deserve it or whatever. But by doing this trip, I could stand on my own two legs. Like, yeah, I can talk bike stuff. I rode across half the world, right? So it gave me a lot of sort of personal confidence that I had what it took to be in this business. Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. What he said is, here's an amazing opportunity. I can pretend like I own a bike shop, but I actually don't have any of the risk. Noel Cagle from Wheel and Sprocket talks about his late father, Chris, and his contributions to the cycling community throughout southeastern Wisconsin. listening to WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is Noel Cagle from Wheel and Sprocket, celebrating their 50th anniversary. Well, your dad, the late Chris Cagle, was so identified with cycling throughout the area. He first got involved in Wheel and Sprocket. Was that in the early 70s? Yeah, 1973. <laughs> and he was not the founder of that business. He was not the founder of the business. But how did he end up acquiring it. Yeah. So the company is 50 years old. Once you reach sort of this longevity, there's like a folklore that develops, you know, some mythology develops. And I wasn't there. I don't exactly know how it happened. But the story that's been told to me, which I'm going with, is in the early 70s, there was the oil crisis. Yeah, this was there were a, a confluence of factors, right? Oil crisis, baby boomers coming of age. And for the first time ever, more bicycles were sold than automobiles. And that had really never happened before. And it's, I don't believe it's happened since. So it was called the bike boom. So the actual founder of Wheel and Sprocket, his name was Frank. He was in the car business. 
And because the car business was not doing too well and the bike business was doing well, he was a young entrepreneurial guy and he thought maybe starting a bike shop would be the smart business move. So Frank had a lot of ambition, very entrepreneurial, opened up the bike shop. He had polio. I don't think he could actually ride a bike himself. And I think quickly realized that he needed somebody in the business that actually knew something about bikes. So I think he asked around. At the time, my dad was assembling bikes at Gimbel's downtown. Uh, he was in school uh, at UWM. He was 20 years old and, uh, you know, part-time job at Gimbel's. And, and Frank somehow found him through the grapevine. And my dad was always into bikes. He loved bikes. When he was a kid, him and his brothers, you know, rode around the neighborhood. They fixed their friends' bikes. So bikes was in his blood, absolutely. So Frank asked my dad to come over to Wheel and Sprocket, this brand new bike shop, you know, sort of be a resource. My dad could fix bikes. He knew about bikes. And so that first summer, after that first summer, things were going pretty well. My dad decided to drop out of school. He always knew that he wanted to have his own business one day. He loved bikes. And again, this is sort of part of the folklore. It's what has been passed down to me. What he said is, here's an amazing opportunity I can pretend like I own a bike shop. I'm on the ground level, but I actually don't have any of the risk. It's not my business. So he adopted that mentality that this could be my education. I could learn business. I could learn the bike business. Um, so he dropped out UWM and he decided to devote himself to this project of getting a bike shop up off the ground. And that's what he did. And he was very dedicated to it. My mom would sort of relay later that, you know, he didn't get paid, you know, many weeks, but he was doing it as right an investment in his own education. And so after about seven years, again, part of the folklore, my dad told Frank, what an amazing experience. Thank you so much. I've learned so much and I'm going to go start my own bike shop now. And Frank said, you, you can't possibly do that. Like you, you run this place. Like I need you. And so Frank made my dad a partner in exchange for staying. And they were partners for about 10 years. And in 1989, my dad bought out Frank, and that's the story. Which is an interesting time, because was it in 1989 that the Tour de France really became known through the world, and cycling got even more popular at that point? Yeah, you know, the Tour de France has been around for a long time, I think over 100 years. 89, I believe, is when Greg LeMond won, and he was the first American to do so. And yeah, the bike business has had ebbs and flows over the years in the late 90s, you had that. And then you also had the advent of the mountain bike, you know, forever. If you think about, you know, through the 50s and 60s, you know, Schwinn was sort of the dominant bike, right? You know, every, every kid had a Schwinn. And in the 70s, you had 10 speeds. And then in the 80s, mountain bikes started to come around and, and yeah, things sort of took off from there. So your dad, and again, if you went to any cycling events throughout the southeastern part of Wisconsin for years. Your dad was there. He mm -hmm. was a part of it. He was either a sponsor mm -hmm. or he was participating. And I'm sure the rest of the family was as well. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the big bike show. Yeah. How passionate was your dad, not just when he was working, but just you know, sitting around the dining room table? Was cycling always the center of conversation with your family? Certainly a very dominant theme <laughs> in the family, for sure. Somewhere along the line, my dad appreciated or learned or discovered that you couldn't survive just on passion alone. And so one thing that I believe contributed to the growth of Wheel and Sprocket over the years is a balance between passion and discipline. You need both. You need the passion, absolutely. And a lot of businesses out there that start have all the passion. But at a certain point, if you want to run a real business and be sustainable and pay your bills and pay employees, like you need to have a level of discipline as well. So that was, I think, sort of his education. He had the passion and his education was the discipline. You know, 
how do P&Ls work? How do balance sheets work? What is interest? You know, sort of the language of money, which I think allowed the company to really grow and prosper over the years. You know, Wheel and Sprocket, when it started, was just a tiny little bike shop in Hills Corners, right? It wasn't the market leader, and it took a long time. It took a lot of discipline. It took a lot of passion. You mentioned Wheel and Sprocket being out on the road at events in the community. I think that was definitely one of the novel elements that allowed Wheel and Sprocket to have its place in the market, because any bike-related event, Wheel and Sprocket was there. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. Very quickly, he adopted this mentality that he's a peacemaker. He's going to enjoy the ride as long as he can, and he never stepped foot in the bike shop after that. Noel Cagle from Wheel and Sprocket talks about how his father, Chris, faced a terminal disease. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back to our conversation with Noel Cagle. I'm your host, Libby Collins. As your dad got more involved, he stayed with cycling. As we said, he was involved in these events. And then it was, and boy, I know this is going to be tough to talk about, but it wasn't that long ago, it was 2017, when he was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of liver cancer. Did he know he was sick before he had that diagnosis? No, no. It, it really sort of came out of nowhere. And hindsight is always twenty twenty. I think there were things, you know, after he was diagnosed, I think he could point to think, you know, how he was feeling or, you know, over the last year or so that maybe something wasn't quite right. But he, you know, was never sort of serious enough to get it checked out. Um, you know, and there really were no true symptoms uh, until it was too late. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's a it's a late stage cancer when it's usually found. How did he cope with that? How did the family cope with that? Yeah, a lot of people are affected by cancer. It is an insidious disease, absolutely, and there's a lot of awareness for different types of cancer, and there's a lot of language around fighting cancer. And, you know, really very quickly uh, after the diagnosis, my dad came to basically decided that he wasn't a fighter, that that never was his personality. He was never a fighter. He was always a peacemaker. He was always a collaborator. Uh, you know, his philosophy in business and in life is win-win or no deal. So it's always about working together. Conflict was really never his way. So just that language around fighting cancer didn't seem right to him. Even if somebody else in that situation had decided to, you know, really fight, there's just not a lot you can do anyways, right? You know, the the prognosis is just really rough. So anyways, very quickly, he adopted this mentality that he's a peacemaker. He's going to enjoy the ride as long as he can. And he never stepped foot in the bike shop after that. And he used the time to just visit. So people flew in from all over the country, you know, friends in the area. He just used every waking hour to just visit with people, foster that connection, tell stories. He knew that it would not last very long, but that was the way he decided to do it, and there's a certain beauty in that, absolutely. But he did participate in that very first slow roll. How did that all come about? Yeah, so I believe he was diagnosed on a Monday or Tuesday, and it was a big shock to the system, right, sure. to everybody. And... A natural question we all ask ourselves is, what what can we do? And the reality is there's not a lot you can do. But what we could do is, is organize an event, have a party, and do a bike ride. And so within 10 days, you know, we called in our friends and, you know, allies and 
got around a table and said, how can we organize an event and how can we do this bike ride, you know, within 10 days? And it's amazing. Like all the people coming out of the woodwork that wanted to help. We had done the State Fair Expo, you know, for, for decades. State Fair says, hey, like use our parking lot. Like, you know, we did it on the Hank Aaron Trail. Like just use it. Like we'll figure it out. We'll figure out the bureaucracy. Just come and host it at State Fair. Food and beverage and, you know, permits. Like it, it was just all amazingly easy because the community wanted to support this effort. So, yeah, uh, we had this event. It was called Chris's Slow Roll. He was not able to physically ride the bike, but he was at the end at the party. And uh, I think, you know, we don't exactly know the number, but we estimate about 1,400 people showed up. What was that like for your dad to see all those people brought together for the single event? Yeah, I mean, how could you not be touched by that? Um, I think it really demonstrated to everybody, to all of us, the amazing impact a single person can have. Right in a community that 1,400 people would show up on short notice and do a bike ride and share stories and smile. It gives me the chills. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. The more people that are riding in a community, it's healthier, it's more vibrant, health outcomes are better. There are so many positive elements to riding bikes. Noel Cagle from Wheel and Sprocket talks about how the interest in cycling has grown throughout southeastern Wisconsin. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with Noel Cagle. This being the 50th anniversary of Wheel and Sprocket, I mean, the slow roll continues. I imagine that's going to be a forever thing. But it also turned into a very positive part for the community, and that is the foundation. Yeah, so the slow roll really was you know, born organically out of crisis, and the whole philosophy for the event is just show up. You don't have to register. You don't have to pay. Like, this is about the community getting together, going on a bike ride. We will celebrate with beer and brats, and, like, we will provide all that. There's nothing you have to do except show up and ride your bike. And I think there's sort of a simplistic beauty to that, which, you know, carries through to this day. So we'll be hosting a slow roll in August, August 27th, and all you have to do is show up. You're going to go on a bike ride with a thousand other people. It's all ages. You know, we have five-year-olds doing it and we have 90-year-olds doing it. And at the end, we're going to share food and drink and music. And uh, you mentioned the Chris Kegel Foundation. So we did set that up to be a conduit to help improve what cycling looks like in the communities we operate in. Specifically, what are some of the things that you do through the foundation? You know, just for a little bit of context, a big part of Wheel and Sprocket's work behind the scenes uh, is in advocacy. So we love bikes. We love being in the bike business. Our business will only get better if more people ride bikes. We believe that bikes make the world a better place. Like the more people that are riding in a community, it's just better. It's healthier. It's more vibrant. Health outcomes are better. Congestion is lower. Like there are so many positive elements to riding bikes. And when you ask people, well, why don't you ride a bike? Most people will say, I don't ride a bike because I don't feel safe or there's nowhere for me to ride. So part of our behind the scenes advocacy work is to really work with all the stakeholders, you know, local governments, advocates to increase the access to safe places to ride bikes. So that's very complicated. Uh, It takes a lot of time. There are a lot of players. 
you know, you think about like the Oak Leaf Trail. The Oak Leaf Trail didn't happen overnight. It has been built over decades and decades, and there's still work to do. So anyways, the, the foundation, what, you know, we're not big enough to secure rights of way. We're not big enough to pave, you know, trails. We're not big enough to um, do the work that basically government does, but we can help fill the gaps. So, for example, one of our first initiatives was on the Oak Leaf Trail, which is an amazing, it's not, it's not a single trail, it's a network uh, throughout the county, 120-some miles. And, and if you've ever been on it, you sometimes may be frustrated by not exactly knowing where to go or where you are going. So there may be a fork and there may be an arrow going in each direction, but you really don't know which way to go. So one of our first initiatives was to basically fund and galvanize a program for the county parks to place trail kiosks and wayfinding signage so that when you're on the trail, you know where you are and you know where you're going. And so it's like a a relatively small and simple thing, which has a lot of impact. Again, we're not going to be able to pave miles on the trail, but we can install signage. So anyways, just those sort of little things are what we're interested in and making a better overall experience. How would you grade this area? for bike trails and safety and availability to the public? I would say better than average, but not among the best. You know, Wisconsin in general, for many, many years, was among the nation's best in terms of miles of trails and bike lanes and so forth, and has enjoyed sort of early success, you know, mostly in the 90s and early 2000s. And we've really fallen behind, I'd say, in the last decade or so. And there are reasons for that, but we have some catching up to do. So Wisconsin is better than most, but not as good as we were and definitely not as good as we could be. Where's the best place that you know of to ride a bike? You know, cities like Portland are often highlighted as great places to ride. I think actually you don't have to go that far. Minneapolis has done a really an amazing job with their bike infrastructure and dedicated trails, protected bike lanes. They've made it a more enjoyable and safer place to ride than what we've been able to accomplish here. But around this area, do you have a favorite route that you take? Sure, I see. Well, definitely the Oak Leaf Trail. What part of it do you like the best? I live on the east side. I used to live in River West, you know, so I'm most familiarity with that section. And, you know, being it's below grade for a lot of it, meaning it's lower than the street. Uh, It was an old rail line. And, you know, riding from like, let's say North Avenue down to Lakefront is just so pleasurable. You know, it's a pretty active part of the trail. You see lots of people, you see lots of smiles. You know, a lot of people recognize me on the trail. That feels good. And it's just so quick. It's so quick to go from River West or the east side down to the lakefront, you know, downtown. The Hank Aaron Trail is an amazing east-west connector, you know, along Canal Street and past the ballpark and through the VA grounds. It's just beautiful. We do have amazing facilities here, but always could be better. (laughs) Noel Cagle, if anybody out there wants to get more information about the Chris Cagle Foundation, about the slow roll, Mm -hmm. about the other events you're having for your 50th anniversary, congratulations on that. What can they do? How can they find out more? Use your Google machine and type in Chris Cagle Foundation. You will find the events that we're hosting this year. I'm very excited about we're doing a gala August 25th. That'll be sort of our official celebration. We're going to sell tickets, fundraiser, all that kind of stuff. We're bringing in some guest speakers. People are coming in from around the country, from the industry and from the community. I'm really looking forward to that. That's on a Friday night. And then Sunday, we'll do the slow roll. That's free for everybody. Just show up. And that'll be a great party. Noel Cagle, thank you for sharing all your stories with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Libby. We've been talking with Noel Cagle. They're celebrating their 50th anniversary at Wheel and Sprocket. We learned how Noel learned so much about himself in a solo trip halfway across the world. 
and also the contributions his late dad, Chris, made to the cycling community throughout southeastern Wisconsin. Now, if you joined us late and you want to hear the entire conversation with Noel, go to WTMJ.com. And you can share today's show with your friends and family. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.